We are continuing in Matthew chapter 23. As we will be for a few weeks. Just for you doubters out there, once we get into next week, we'll be looking at more than one verse because that's the passage. As you're turning there, let me say Jesus is continuing his pronouncements of judgment against the scribes and the Pharisees. There are eight of them found in this chapter. Each of them is introduced with the word woe. Uh, The word woe is a, a cry of anguish or a declaration of a horror to come. Jesus is not warning these men about what will happen if they don't repent. He's telling them what is going to happen because of their ongoing sin. Uh, Praise God, no born-again Christian faces the wrath of God. There will be no woes for those who know Christ. This is not because we've done it the right way. It's not because we have earned God's favor and God's good pleasure by our good works. It's because we have put our faith in Jesus alone to save us. And through that faith, we have turned away from sin. So it's so important that we be clear on this because of our sinful tendency to think of ourselves as better than others. That is the human condition anyway. Uh, it, It goes back to Adam. What is this you have done? God says to Adam, have you eaten of the fruit I told you not to eat of? Adam says, it's not my fault. The woman you gave me, the woman you gave me, you two can share the blame. It's not my fault. We're always trying to make ourselves better. And so even as Christians, we need this reminder. There's only been one person completely without sin. That's Jesus Christ. And so no one gains favor with God because they did a good thing, ever. The only reason that anyone is saved is that the Father freely and unconditionally chose them in eternity past. The Son willingly died in their place on his cross, and the Spirit regenerates them completely and fully by his power. That's the only reason. So all praise and glory for your life in Christ, if you're in Christ, goes to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't even deserve the smallest good job when it comes to our salvation. Jesus, we're told, will uh, say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But that's not having to do with salvation. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary in the first place. This morning we're going to see uh, with the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus' pronouncement of judgment that they went to extraordinary efforts to make proselytes. This is the roadmap, by the way, of where we're going. They went to extreme efforts to make proselytes. They had a measure of success, but the results were ultimately damnable. In contrast, we are to be faithful stewards of the gospel, aiming at spiritual success to the praise and the glory of God. That's where we're headed. So let's, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at it. Father, your word is true. It is God-breathed. You have preserved it over time, not through magic, but by giving us literally thousands of copies so that we can look at it from the second century all the way to our time and we can say 
It's all consistent. It's all true. All of these manuscripts are, are in agreement with each other on the doctrines and the truths they reveal. There is no question that we have your word and that it is filled with power. There's no question that you gave it to us to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. And we ask for your mercy that we would not be like the scribes and the Pharisees who were unteachable, unreprovable, incorrectable, and, and ultimately un, untrainable. Grant us by your spirit understanding and faith. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning with this extraordinary effort that the scribes and the Pharisees went to, I need a sip of water. Jesus says that they traveled land and sea to make one proselyte. The idea is that they went to the ends of the earth and that they expended Tremendous effort, a huge amount of, of effort. Uh, this was all part of their program of good works in order to earn God's favor, in order to earn God's approval. Those, those kind young men who knock on your door wearing white shirts with black name tags are scribes and Pharisees. It's exactly what they are. They're out there like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the same way, and, and every other false group. They're out there desperately trying to earn the favor of God by this work of proselytizing. We can't call it evangelism. Why not? Because the word evangel means good news, and they have no good news. It is proselytizing, but it's not evangelism. They don't have good news. Proselyte is not a common word in the English language, uh, and that's for a good reason. It's kind of an odd word. It was a unique technical term used by Greek-speaking Jews to describe a Gentile who fully converted to Judaism. According to Jesus, the, the Pharisees and the scribes were passionate, dedicated proselytizers. Most of the time, they produced what the Bible calls God-fearers. Those are Gentiles who believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God. They would attend synagogue services, and they would worship the one true God, but they didn't convert. And every once in a while, much rarer, a Gentile would become a proselyte. They would fully convert to Judaism. This was a radical change of identity. It meant the abandonment of, of the old life and old relationships. They would be given new names. Uh, see if any of this sounds familiar to you. There would be a sacrifice performed in order to make them Jews, they would be baptized and the men would be circumcised. They would be given new names. God planted within Judaism, even as twisted as it was, the, the, the high points of the gospel itself. We're not saved because of an animal sacrifice in a temple, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We're not, we're not saved by or through physical circumcision, but because our hearts were circumcised by God. And he took away our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. We receive new names, Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3. Every last step of this process was driven 
and motivated and energized by their personal intensity. They had to drive every moment of it. Um, if you haven't seen the, the, the musical Hamilton, I'm about to spoil it for you. At the end, Alexander Hamilton is killed in a duel with Aaron Burr. And the way they depict this duel in the, in the musical is that two actors pretend to take a bullet out of the gun as it's fired and they move in slow motion across the stage. As he sings, as all of this happens in slow motion, the only way for that bullet to get from there to the actor is for somebody to physically take it because he didn't, spoiler alert, they don't actually kill each other in the play. So it's, they're not real guns. Well, that's the proselytizing of the scribes and Pharisees. It's the proselytizing of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and every false group today. Every bit of it has to be done by hand. There is no spirit bringing it to pass unless it's an evil spirit. But there is no Holy Spirit bringing about a new identity, a new name, bringing about forgiveness. It all has to be done by human effort. And they had a measure of success. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one. So Jesus says you have some success at this. It does work out at times. Weeks or months or even years of exhausting work would pay off. A Gentile would, be, would agree to become a Jew. But in a much more important sense, it results in failure. And the outcome the results are damnable. They're damnable. So Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice a son of hell as yourselves. Doubly dead. Doubly damned, as a Puritan said in a commentary. Why? Because these proselytes, these Gentiles who convert to Judaism are not being reconciled to God. They were dead in their sins and their trespasses. They were by nature children of wrath as we all were at birth. But in their conversion to Judaism, they're not reconciled. They're still dead in their sins. They're still children of wrath. And now they, they say to God, I don't need your grace. I don't need your mercy. I was reminded this morning uh, in, in Creighton that, that the, the word Bethsaida means house of mercy, house of love. Beth from house and Seda coming from the Hebrew word chesed, which means loving kindness or grace or mercy or favor. The Gentile who converts to Judaism says to God, I don't need your house of favor. I don't need your house of grace. I'll do it myself, thank you. They'd been under God's wrath before conversion, and then they rejected his mercy in favor of their works. And they reject his word in favor of the human traditions that they've adopted. All human religion, period, is damning. All of it, none of it can save. And that's because human religion is never driven by faith in God or love for him. It's driven by a combination of fear of judgment on the one side and personal accomplishment on the other side. 
Jehovah's Witnesses don't stand there with their, their magazines and their paperwork and, and everything else that they set up because they have a deep abiding affection and freedom in Jesus Christ. They do it because if they don't, they will not receive any good thing. And they have to expend extraordinary effort. I heard a, a conversation between a Mormon and a pastor a number of years ago. And the pastor pointed out to the Mormon, you believe that salvation is by human works. And the Mormon said, no, I believe salvation is by grace. Once I have done all that I can do. Once I have done all that I can do, God's grace will save me. Have you ever done all that you can do? Ever? Once? Has, have you ever exhausted yourself? And what the Mormons believe is this is a lifetime of exhausting yourself, but they fail every day. There's always more. And so they can never count on the, God, the grace of God. Converts come to the scribes and the Pharisees and modern groups solely because of human arguments and efforts. Nothing changes internally. There is only external change of affiliation. There's no transformation. So what do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. It's a terrible statement of judgment on the scribes and the Pharisees. What about us? What does the Lord call for us to do and to be? He calls for us to be faithful stewards of the gospel. The scribes and Pharisees were unfaithful stewards of the law of God. We are to be faithful stewards of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Did you do your job? Did you do your duty? That's what's required. Our world recognizes only measurable earthly accomplishments. And we see that in the popularity of of how-to books. Uh, Over 60,000 books on Amazon with the word self-help in the title. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands that have to do with self-help. I read, I don't know how true it is, but I read that every year 15,000 new self-help books are published. We want results that can be weighed and counted and measured and tallied and totaled. But Jesus doesn't count success by the number of units delivered. He counts success by faithfulness. We are to be faithful stewards of the gospel. That means at least two things. It means that we keep the gospel pure. And it means that we speak it with clarity and simplicity. Let's talk about keeping the gospel pure. In Galatians, uh, Paul writes to a group of churches. Galatia was not a city. It was a region in what we would call central Turkey today. That letter deals largely with the corruption of the gospel into something that was not the gospel. Men called Judaizers, they were Jews who said Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to become Christians, had infiltrated the region. And they were saying to Gentile men who were Christians, you're not actually a Christian until you're circumcised because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and therefore you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. 
Now, typically, very early in Paul's letters, once he gets through the greeting, he speaks of his gratitude and thankfulness for these people. He, he offers a prayer of thanksgiving for them. And there's none of that in Galatians. In, in Galatians, he gives the greeting and he takes his belt off. He takes his slipper off. And he says in verses 8 and 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven, so remember that for the next time those nice young men in the white shirts come. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. That is precisely what Mormonism says. The angel Moroni gave Joseph Smith a new gospel. That's what they say. As we have said before, he says, so I say again now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. Paul points to history. The gospel we have proclaimed in the past. The gospel you received in the past has not changed. The gospel I spoke to you, Paul says, when I first walked into your cities has not changed to this moment, and it will never change. It hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years. There's just one gospel, and it doesn't change. If we add to the gospel, or if we take something away from the gospel, it doesn't just become a false gospel. It becomes the anti-gospel. Gospel literally means good news. Changing the gospel turns it into terrible news. Instead of being the power of God to save, it becomes the power of the devil to condemn. The little book of Jude commands us to do, you and I, what Paul did. It commands us to defend the gospel. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Contend earnestly means to fight diligently. Not against. For. Not contend earnestly against all the false things out there but to fight earnestly and vigorously for the truth that has been given. And he says that faith was once for all handed down to the saints. He doesn't mean once for all people, although that's true. The sense of that word is once for all time. The gospel was delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ, handed into the hands of his apostles. And beloved, since the day he did that, it hasn't changed at all at all you're saved by the same gospel that peter believed it's the same thing jude goes on to say the reason that this is so important is that certain people are creeping into the churches they're sneaking in by deception and they're doing that he says in order to turn the grace of god into sensuality well if you want to see the bible come to life in our time Churches today that are filled with sensuality and sexuality and perversion. They corrupt and pollute the gospel into a sick, devilish, damning thing. So we as the people of Christ are 
called upon to defend it vigorously. That's the first part of being faithful. The second part is keeping it simple. Not keep it simple stupid. We don't want to be insulting to anybody, but to keep it simple. Paul wrote the Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of word or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my word and, and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Simple, clear. When he says, I did not come to you with superiority of word, he, he's talking about a lot of highbrow, highblown speech that makes everything so eloquent and attractive to us. When I was in high school, I had a, uh, a government teacher who was funny and, and had zero, zero sense of humor. I knew he was funny because he told jokes all the time. And I know he had no sense of humor because one time he told a joke that just fell flat. And he said, you people don't appreciate a good joke. And I said, try us. And he kicked me out of the class. So I know he had no sense of humor. Because the rest of the class laughed. I got the laugh. I remember he read a paragraph to us. Here's, here's a pop quiz. He read a paragraph to us and then he, five minutes, ten minutes or whatever, write what the paragraph said. And we just labored over it and worked at it. And then he read it again and he said it says nothing. It says nothing. It's just a bunch of positive phrases, but it says nothing. It communicates nothing. That's not how we're to approach the gospel. Not with things that are designed to make your eyes glaze over and, boy, he's such a good speaker. Simple, clear. Not in personal confidence and boldness, but in weakness and fear and trembling. I, I, boy, I feel that way every time I go to the jail. I've been gone since November, and I still walk in, and these guys come in. And there have been a couple of times where I've thought, oh, most of the time you're just dealing with guys who made a mistake. But there are times when, maybe it's just paranoia, you feel like this is a wicked man. This is a wicked man. Not in persuasive words of wisdom, he says, but in, in the Spirit's demonstration of his own power. I don't think Paul means performing miracles that confirm the word here. I think what he means is preaching the gospel in the kind of simplicity and clarity that any critic would just say, I don't get it. What are you talking about? But somewhere in the room, somebody gasps and says, oh, I know. I believe that. That's me. And they're transformed. That's the power he's talking about. I want to be clear here. Please don't misunderstand me. When I talk about speaking the gospel in simplicity, I don't mean simplify it. Simplifying the gospel would be taking the elements of the gospel and trying to cull through them and filter them out and make it smaller than what it is. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to begin with it 
in, in what would be called, here, here goes persuasive words of wisdom. We need, to, we need to handle it as an irreducible truth. An irreducible truth means if you take one thing away, it's no longer what it is. It's already boiled down to what it is. And from that point, we must not simplify it further. So, for instance, to proclaim the gospel of Christ without talking about eternal judgment is not to proclaim the gospel. It removes an element of the good news because the good news is good news in light of the bad news. Don't simplify it, but declare it in simplicity. The gospel is so simple that it it offends people left and right. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 1. We go back a chapter. For indeed, Jews asked for signs. They asked for miraculous signs. Give us a sign of power. And Greeks searched for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, not power. To the Gentiles, foolishness, not wisdom. Oh, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. And Christ is the wisdom of God. And so the religionist says, I need a sign of power. And we say, I can't give you a more powerful sign than the Son of God dying on the cross in the place of his people and rising from the dead. And the secularist says, I need evidence of wisdom. And we say, I can't give you greater wisdom than Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. The Jews, the religious people, want powerful signs. Jesus is the power of God. The Gentiles want wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God. There are people today who demand powerful signs. I've known some. And not all of, the, all, all of those that I've known, but some of those that I known, I've known dismiss conversion as a powerful sign. Yeah, 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 I've been saved. I've been saved. Now I want more. You've had everything. The fullness of God's power in Christ has been poured out on your life if you've been born again. Everything else is less. It's not that God can't do other powerful things, but no other powerful thing exceeds the power of your new birth. There are people today who demand wisdom and philosophies, but if they miss the great wisdom that is Jesus Christ dying so that God can can be just and punish sin and God can be loving and save sinners, how do you do that? That's a devilish conundrum. There's a powerful word for it. We're going to put God into an impossible position. We're going to convince his, this is Satan talking, I think, to his demons. We're going to talk God into destroying his most beloved creation. He's holy. If Adam sins, he has to destroy him. We're going to make God's love and God's justice fight. We're going to cause a civil war within God. And God says, ah, I'm going to destroy sin and I'm going to save sinners. That's extraordinary wisdom. So we don't simplify the gospel, but we keep it simple and clear. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 3.23 and 24. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if you, believe, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses leading to salvation. Don't complicate the gospel. Don't edit it. Don't alter it. Don't confuse it. Don't market it like a new phone. Don't try to make it appealing to the lustful, sinful, proud, arrogant mind. Proclaim it as it is simply and clearly now having done that how do we measure success well we begin by rejoicing that we are counted worthy to speak of his name and then we leave the results in the hands of the father and the son and the holy spirit jesus told nicodemus you must be born again nicodemus says i don't get it how do i do that And Jesus said, you're missing the point. You don't do that. And then he goes on to describe the Holy Spirit as as wind. You know that the wind is blowing because you see it happening right here in front of you, but you don't know where it came from, and you don't know where it's going to go next. So you don't know where the Holy Spirit has been at work. You, You know that all of a sudden, within this person, within this boy or girl, this man or woman, you see faith. And you see repentance and you see brokenness over sin, but you see rejoicing and peace over the gift of Christ. And you know the Spirit's at work. Where is he going to go next? No one can say, oh, he's going to her next. Oh, he's going to him next. No one can say that. We don't know. Maybe the most foolish thing the revival movement has ever done is said, hey, three weeks we're having a Holy Spirit revival. Really? You got him on your calendar. You know where he's going. You can predict where he's going to be. We don't know. So success for us is not counting conversions or baptisms or tracts handed out. It's not people who prayed the, the sinner's prayer. Success for us is being faithful stewards of the gospel. We keep it biblically pure. We reject every attempt to change it to suit the times. We speak it clearly and simply nothing in our ability to persuade anyone. It's the Holy Spirit working through the gospel. Our flesh hates this. The evangelical world at at large hates this. Almost every book on evangelism that you find is going to put the bulk of the effort in your hands. You have to chase them down. You have to know the right answers. You have to persuade them. You have to press them then to make a decision. Our job is to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ simply and clearly. The Spirit's job is to make that proclamation effectual, soften the heart of the sinner, Grant the sinner faith in Jesus, strip away their sins, dress them in the righteousness of Christ, put their old nature to death, and give them new life in Christ, and grant them repentance and new obedience. 
I didn't have it up there. I didn't have it. Anyway, no big deal. All right, so we're called to do our part. We're called to do our part. We're not called to do the Spirit's part. And whereas the results of the efforts of the scribes and the Pharisees were damnable, the results of faithful stewards preaching the gospel in simplicity and clarity are praiseworthy and glorious to God. So over the course of my ministry and the course of of ministry at, at the mission and at the jail, I've preached the gospel hundreds of times, perhaps thousands of times, and I've seen very few conversions. I've only seen a handful of dramatic Damascus Road fall to the face conversions. Not one of them was real. Not one of them. They quickly turned away. They sprouted up like Jesus said, like a seed dropped on the rocks, and they were gone just as quickly. If I required positive, measurable, earthly success to feel validated in what I do in ministry, I would quit and do something less complicated and stressful like bomb disposal. (laughs) But I've got some convictions about evangelism and the gospel provided to me by scripture. I'm just going to give you two. First, to get the negative out of the way, God is glorified equally by saving sinners and by condemning them. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 to 24, speaks of him in demonstrating both his wrath and his power upon vessels of wrath and demonstrating the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. And he's glorified equally by both. We're not going to spend eternity with a God who sits there moping in a corner because there was glory he was denied. He will receive all glory. It says in Acts, earlier on in Romans chapter 9, he says, I raised you, he says to Pharaoh, I raised you up that I would get glory over you. And the way he got glory over Pharaoh was by destroying him and by delivering his own people in spite of Pharaoh's attempts to keep that from happening. Clearly, we want to see the lost come to Jesus. We want to see loved ones come to Jesus and believe. We want to see them saved. We want friends and family to be saved. We want that. It's right to want that. We should pray to that end. But regardless what happens, we must glorify God. Regardless what happens, we must glorify God. And second, the second conviction is that Jesus did not commission us to make converts, but lifelong disciples. Almost all modern evangelism, as I said, is decision-based. As long as someone says they're a Christian, it's a win. Whether or not they genuinely believe. Well, Jesus said the angels of heaven rejoice whenever one sinner repents well yes because heaven knows when it's real heaven knows that it's actually a sinner repenting and it's not a sinner faking it or pretending and anybody who tells you nobody would pretend to be a christian is probably pretending to be a christian that so undermines human sinfulness and depravity it'd be shocking if anybody said that in a minute So we don't know when repentance is real until we begin to see the fruit of saving faith, which is enduring faith in Christ and obedience to him. Do they trust Jesus? 
Do they love him? Do they trust him when it's hard? Do they trust him when the bad news comes? Do they trust him in the hard diagnosis? Do they trust him when their hearts are breaking? And do they trust him when they're helpless and they're powerless and there's nothing going right? Do they trust him? The person who trusts in Jesus and loves him in those circumstances, not that they're not helpless, not that they're not confused, not that they're not upset, not that they're not frustrated, but the person who trusts him, that's a sign of genuine faith. Are they humble and repentant about their sin? Are they growing in daily obedience to the Lord? Those are signs of genuine faith. As we we bring this home, the Lord has given us his word to teach and reprove and correct and train us. The scribes and the Pharisees were under the judgment of God because they sought to convert others to their traditions, doubly damning them. We are called to be faithful stewards of the gospel, defending it and speaking it with clarity and simplicity. What can you do to to defend the purity of the gospel? You can quickly reject anything that contradicts it as false. It's false. Somebody says, I found a new truth. No, you didn't. There are no new truths. Somebody says, I've got a, I've got a new prophetic word. No, you don't. Canon's closed. I think it was Jonathan Edwards or one of the old reformer guys who said, look, some new prophetic word from God, if it's false, it's not biblical. And if it's biblical, it's not necessary. God has given us everything in scripture and in the spirit of God that we need for life and godliness. The content of knowledge we need to have is found in his word. The power of living that out is granted to us by the spirit of God. So we can urge brothers and sisters in Christ to test everything by scripture and dismiss what's false. So much of the trouble in in the modern church is because that has not happened, because things creep in and they're simply accepted and nobody has the courage to say, but is that true? That's wrong. That's not biblical. And what can you do to present the gospel fully and simply and clearly? It's simple. Be prepared. Just be prepared. Memorize the basic facts of the gospel. If you can't memorize them, write them down on a business card and stick them in your purse or stick them in your wallet, stick them in your, in your pocket. But it's actually very simple. God is. God is holy. God created all things for his glory. God created man in his image. God gave man a command and said, if you violate it, you'll die. Man violated it and died physically and spiritually. He's passed that death onto us in the form of a sin nature that's in rebellion against God. All rebellion faces eternal judgment. We can't save ourselves. God sent his son to take on human flesh, live a holy life, and I should be ticking off more, live a holy life, die as a substitute on the cross, and rise in victory over the grave. And all who trust in Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, will be saved. What's that, 15 or 18 seconds? You can memorize that. If you can't, write it down. Is there more that can be said? Certainly. Just keep it simple. Are there more verses than you can use than I've used in this sermon? Certainly. Just keep it simple. Don't be clever. Don't be clever. One of the convictions I had after I, this is just a freebie here. One of the convictions I had after I, I started preaching more regularly at the mission 
was I need to not hint. I need to tell. I need to not hint that these people who don't know the Lord are in trouble. I need to not do that. I need to tell them you're in trouble. And I'm in trouble. And without Christ, there would be no hope for me. It's not about me being better. I regularly say to the guys at the jail, they wear, they wear orange jumpsuits. And I just regularly tell them, I've never done anything that would get me an orange jumpsuit. But I've done enough to send me to hell for all eternity. And I need a savior. And you need a savior. You just tell them. What's surprising is nobody argues. When I just tell them, I'm a sinner and you're a sinner in need of a savior. There's no argument. I'm sure some are mentally disagreeing. But when they're wearing an orange jumpsuit, it's hard for them to say, I've made a right decision. That's a little bit of a, of a cheat. Defend the gospel. Keep it clear and simple. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us by your spirit your favor. Help us to take it seriously for ourselves. Some of us have known you for decades, but let it be fresh. As David prayed in Psalm 51, restore to us the joy of our salvation. We thank you for